Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. Joining me on the podcast journey is my wife and partner in Parkinson's, the love of my life, Rebecca Gifford. Hello. The magnificent Rebecca. <laughs> no, it's the amazing Rebecca. Oh, the amazing Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my best friends. She buys me fantastic birthday gifts every year. And she heard in one of our early episodes, you call me the amazing Rebecca and then suggest that we have t-shirts made. And she made them. She made a (laughs) t-shirt designed by her daughter, who is very artistic and lovely, and um, had it printed up and sent to me for my birthday. So it's official. I've been branded the amazing Rebecca. The amazing Rebecca. We're going to put it on business cards too. Well, I am excited about today's conversation and the interview that you did because like the uh, lovely woman that you interviewed, I am also a writer. And those of you who have listened to the podcast in the past probably know this. And I'm also a proponent of writing as a way of not only expressing yourself creatively, but also as a tool for resilience and self-care and processing the traumas and experiences that we all have. Yeah, and I think I think it's a it's a really valuable tool that not everybody thinks about first off when they get a diagnosis. Like, I need to write about this, but it can be very cathartic. Yes, and a lot of people actually do decide to put it down in some form or tell their story in some form, whether it be a podcast or a book or a blog. Um, a lot of people feel quite compelled to share their story. And often when we are discussing Parkinson's focus books, it's a memoir or a nonfiction, an informational guide, or a book like Ending Parkinson's, which advises readers on living with or treating symptoms of Parkinson's. And today, as we mentioned, we are talking to Robin Cotton, who is the author of a novel called Mary and Me. It's the story of two women living with Parkinson's disease 200 years apart. Mary's story takes place in London around 1810, and the me in the title is Rose, a contemporary fictional character inspired by Robin's personal journey with Parkinson's. Robin lives in New Zealand, has Parkinson's. Mary and Me is her second novel, and I was delighted to chat with her recently. Larry, it's really great to be meeting you like this and talking to you. Um, I just want to say that I've listened to a number of your podcasts and I really appreciate the work that you do for the Parkinson's community. So thank you. Before diving into her novel, I, I really wanted to get an idea of Robin's life before Parkinson's was a part of it. I've been a Kiwi all my life. It's a really lovely country, New Zealand. Um, we have the mountains and the beaches, and in one day you can go from being in the snow down to a beach. And it's small, it's compact, Um, there's not too many of us down here, but it is beautiful. Uh, I'm just trying to get people to to picture like a map in their head, so we all know we're kind of where Australia is, and you're off to the east a little bit, Um, and and that's that's where Lord of the Rings was filmed. Yes, it was, Um, and Lord of the Rings has really put us on the map for a lot of people because it really showcased some of the um, beautiful scenery around New Zealand. Well, and I think the first thing I really knew of uh, from New Zealand was some of your great wines. 
<laughs> yes, we're really good at wine. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my parents describing their visit to New Zealand and Australia and how much they were charmed by the people and the um, beautiful scenery, the animals and the way they connect with the with the land and their beautiful land and just kind of I, I don't want to call it um, quaint because it's bigger than that but just in size it's smaller than Australia and it functions that way where it's very people oriented and locally oriented well and, and Robin and some other people that I know in New Zealand have all invited us down so, like, we have places to stay and people to see. Let's go. When are we going to New Zealand? <laughs> I think maybe WPC 2026. <laughs> <laughs> Eli, are you listening? Okay, so back to Robin's story. So what's it like for her having Parkinson's in New Zealand? Well, there are about 10,000 people in New Zealand with Parkinson's disease. And that will more than double in the next 20 years, which means, unfortunately, Robin is in good company. I'm part of a group up here um, in Auckland, and we organise Living Positively with Parkinson's events every couple of months and get a speaker in. And, you know, there are people that come along to those events who are trying to deal with Parkinson's on their own. They've got no support. And, you know, it's it's hard like that. I mean, I'm so fortunate. I have a really good support network around me personally. Right. Um, Can't imagine doing it alone. No, I I agree. And, um, you know, and, and those, you know, I look at some people that have just got diagnosed and, and it's just like they've been hit by a bus. Yeah. I was just talking to a gentleman yesterday who I've known for many years over the course of my career. And he just got diagnosed and he called me and uh, he's like, I've been following what you're doing. I'm reading your stuff. I just got diagnosed. I'm like, okay, take a deep breath. You know? And I, and I said, what, 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 what's your mind right now? He goes, what's the prognosis? You know, like, that's the first thing is, am I going to die? Right. Mm. Like how, how much time do I have? I mean, that's where I went too. I didn't know anything about the disease when I got diagnosed. So you don't know what you don't know. Mm. So you just, you know, I think it's being calm and, and letting, I just, one of my most important points that I try to get across to people is you are still you. Mm. Mm. You know, you are not defined by your tr tremor. You're not defined by your arm that doesn't tremor. You're not, you're, you're not defined by your, uh, the way you walk. You're defined by your heart and your heart's fine. And it's, it's, if you get diagnosed as young as I did, you, you could have 30 more, like Michael J. Fox's. 30 years in like you know i know people that are 25 26 27 years in so that gives me hope well i was unfortunate enough to um, visit my auntie who had it every day till she died and in those last years she was in a really bad state i mean she was just lying in a bed pretty much or in a bed chair and she couldn't communicate and um so when I got diagnosed, that was the first thing I thought of. And I had that picture of me yes. in her shoes. And what I had to come to terms with was actually it's a boutique disease and we all have it differently. And, you know, the sooner that you um, put in place lifestyle changes like your exercise and diet, 
you know, the hopefully the more well that we will be for longer. Right. And I am not my auntie, and um, but I make that point in the book because I think people have to realise that just because somebody else is having a bad um, time with it doesn't mean right. that you will necessarily have that bad time. Exactly. And that's, I, I, I at first was trying to compare myself to people. I'm like, how many pills are you taking? What are you taking? Am I, like, yeah. you got to stop that because it'll drive you crazy. It has to be difficult watching a relative suffer with Parkinson's and watch that whole process and then later be diagnosed with it and have a view into at least a portion of what your journey may be like. So the mental anguish of seeing what the end can be, that's, that's harsh. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we, we knew some people with Parkinson's, but I didn't know anybody late stage Parkinson's. So I, I'd never experienced that from a personal standpoint. No. And we never had a relative so close or be involved in caregiving or, or anything like that. So that's quite a journey to watch from beginning to end and then know that you are experiencing somewhat of the same journey. Everybody's journey is different, but understanding the challenges that she'd be up against. Robin's lived in New Zealand all her life, and sometime before her Parkinson's disease, she published the novel A Skylark Flies. Yes, and I didn't know much about that first book, which prompted me to ask her when she decided, huh, I think I'll write a novel. Uh, I guess that's always been a life goal for me. Um, throughout my career, I did a lot of business writing and writing of um, for science scientific type papers, but I was always interested in creative writing. And I started with my first book, A Skylark Flies, probably 10 years ago. Um, and I wrote the first chapter very quickly. And I happened to read it out to my husband for some feedback and said, what do you think? And he said, mm, yes, it's got potential. But he said, why don't you enroll in a creative writing course? So being very tactful, um, he <laughs> persuaded me to go off and do that. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. I really enjoyed it. Um, and after that course, I had a, a Skylark Flies published. And um, then I went on um, to write my second book, Mary and Me. So what was the first book about? The first book was about a young Kiwi woman who goes off on her overseas adventure um, at the a young age of um, 20, 21. She goes back to the UK to discover her roots, and while she's there, she's attacked. And the book follows uh, her, her um, as the central character and the impact of that attack on her life, and it also follows her attacker and the impact of it on his life. And ultimately, it's a story of um, forgiveness, um, but it also shows um, that um, the the impact of not ha not having that um, on on the attacker on his life. I think this is a really compelling concept, following a, a victim and an attacker to see the ripple effects of that event. And so empathetic. 
right? To really think about the experiences, the life experiences that led to that person's violence or abuse, and that it often includes their own experiences with violence and abuse. So really taking a look at that is um, very empathetic. Well, and, and I wondered, like, how do you crawl into the mindset of the attacker? And, and, and I, asked, I asked her, where does that inspiration even come from? I myself went on my OE um, at that age to the UK, and I was attacked when I was um, in Scotland. And so I wanted to use that experience and turn it into something positive for other people. Um, and when I started writing about it, I began to wonder about the person who had actually attacked me, who I didn't know, and I have no idea what happened to him. And, and so I really wrote the story that I would have liked to have had had I ever met him. That's fascinating. And, and so that was 10 years ago. Fast forward four and a half years, and you get those uh, the, the fateful diagnosis, you've got Parkinson's. What's going through your head at that moment of diagnosis? Uh, probably like many of us, um, I remember walking out of that neurologist's office, and um, I was shocked, um, in a state of shock. I was a bit disbelieving. I think I went into denial. I was a bit despairing. I was sad, I was angry, um, and it took me a little bit of time to get to the point where I was resigned and then resolute. And what, do you, what do you consider a little bit of time? Huh. Uh, I probably cycled through that. It's like a grief cycle, isn't it, that yeah. you, you go through when you lose your health like that. And so it was probably a period of, I don't know, maybe six months um, part of that time was um, doing a lot of research to look at how I can fight it um, and, and really getting myself into that positive place. Can you point to a few things that sort of helped you come out of the grief and into living life for now and for the future? Yeah, sure. Um, I... Well, I, I did a lot of research, um, and that's part of my background. Um, I was a researcher um, for a time, and so I naturally went down that rabbit hole and, and tried to learn as much as I could. But soon after I was diagnosed, I was lucky enough to be um, accepted onto a clinical trial um, for Parkinson's, and it was a dietary trial, and I was in the ketogenic diet group. And that had a big impact on my non-motor symptoms. It really helped a lot. My doctor had told me that it was important that I did lots of exercise. So I started doing a lot more exercise and became very fit. So between exercise, diet, and my determination to be positive, I guess, um, I, I started to feel a lot more well than what I did when I was actually diagnosed. And and I've I coined the phrase being pet, and that's what I like to think that I have a little toolkit, and in my toolkit I have um, P for prayer, E for exercise, P for positivity, P for pills, and D for diet. Yeah. And I guess if I wanted to, I could say I've also worked hard to lower the stress in my life, and have taken early retirement to do that. Um, and of course, social interaction is always important too. But I like to think that I'm being picked. 
That's awesome. I love that. You said you were you strive to find that positivity. Have you always been a positive person up until the diagnosis? Yes, I I, I have been. And um, after I was attacked in Scotland all those years ago, one of the things I did to get over that was to focus on the positives. And I tried to find the positives that came out of that experience for me and really focus on those. And I think having a diagnosis um, like Parkinson's is the same thing. You know, we can go down that dark place um, if we if we allow the negatives to to um, be prominent, I guess. But I've tried really hard to focus on the positives and and just to to keep doing that. And I think with Parkinson's, when you're low in that dopamine, you know, the dopamine is a feel good factor. It's not that easy to be positive, as most of us know, and, and there are times when um, it's just really difficult. But I think I look at it that if I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm low in dopamine, then I need to be more deliberate about being positive. And I need to, and so I tell myself, I'm going to have a positive day. It's going to be a good day, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do it. And that's what I do. You're resilient. The resiliency is amazing. You talk about trying to find the positivity of being attacked in Scotland. That seems almost impossible. And then you had to face it again with Parkinson's and you've been able to, to do it there as well. Uh, you must have some magic Kiwi spirit inside of you. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I do remember when I was a child, my father used to say I was boneheaded. And um, for those that haven't heard that phrase before, it, it basically means that I was very determined and I'm determined that this Parkinson's is not going to beat me. So Robin is a great example of someone who uses creative writing to work through her own traumatic events. And we all have experienced traumas with little T and big T in our life. And I believe that creative expression writing ha happens to be mine and Robin's go-to can be a fantastic tool for looking at all aspects and diving into your experience with it, allowing all of the emotions, giving it a place to go, even using your imagination as she does to kind of fill in some of the blanks for the questions that she has around this event. Putting words to things forces you to choose an idea and really look at what what are the things that you're actually feeling what are the things you really want to look at and need to look at writing is a is a very effective way to do that and as she explains it's not easy it's not like suddenly everything's okay because i wrote about it <laughs> it's hard it takes a lot of work and a lot of courage to really dig into these kinds of events and write about them yeah, and, and I imagine, and we, we talk about how hard it is to, to go to those dark places. There's, she, she must have gone through quite a few of the, the dark nights of the soul. Or You've talked about that in your writing, too. Like, in order for it to get on the final page, you've got to dig 10 layers down. And not everybody's ready for that. It also is an opportunity for storytelling and vulnerability, which helps the community, if you're willing to share, as Robin is. 
And there's a, a sense of satisfaction that comes from that. And also a healing process that you're experiences, experiencing as a writer, but also the reader is experiencing. I had the idea during lockdown that maybe I could use my creative writing skills to um, write something about Parkinson's, my, my experiences and what's been working for me. Um, and to also take people on that journey from that disparate diagnosis through to a, a um, resilience and, and positivity. And so I decided to write the novel and I started with Rose, who was based on my experience. So she's a contemporary um, based on my experience. And when I wrote about Rose, I started thinking about, you know, what would it have been like to have had this disease 200 years ago when James Parkinson um, was around? And that was where Mary came from. So Mary is completely fictitious, and I read as much as I could about what it would have been like to have Parkinson's back then, and that's how she was formed. Okay, I want to go back to to your pseudonym, Rose. Is there any significance in that name? Um, I chose Rose because she was the character that, that I used in my first book. So it's Rose is um, in my first book is Skylight Flies, and I decided to use the same character a number of years on um, for Mary and Me. That's great. Uh, and then, obviously, as a researcher, uh, you talked about how you did some research about what it would have been like back then. But it wasn't just about having Parkinson's. I mean, the the the, the world that you create is taking us back two hundred years. You had to you had to do much more research than just beyond the disease itself, but about what it must have been like to live back then. And what what was that experience like for you diving deep into those catacombs? It was really interesting, um, and I guess one of the things um, that I felt very strongly about was that we are so incredibly lucky to be alive in this place and in this time, because back then it was it was would have been a terrible thing to have Parkinson's disease. If you had those symptoms, um, you were basically a social outcast, and many people would have hidden been hidden in their houses. Um, they were considered to have either had too much of the alcohol or gin as was the alcohol of choice for the working classes back then and in the UK this was in England um, or that they had demonic possession and you can kind of see why people would have thought that when they weren't entirely in control of their limbs um, or they were insane and if you had it, you were likely to end up in a sanatorium um, and, and the sort of treatments were just awful. The way you're talking about the way that they were treated 200 years ago is also similar to the stories I'm hearing today about how people are treated in like Uganda. Yes, that, that's right. Um, and I actually visited uh, Uganda and Kenya and I was talking to some people there um, and they were saying that in not in the cities, but certainly in some of the, the remote country areas where people don't have a medical clinic, um, then often it's it looked at as something to do with witch doctors and um, and demonic possession type type thing. So it, it's 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 almost a little bit eerie that that's still happening in 2022. 
I, I'm curious about uh, how you found a voice for Dr. Parkinson. Well, I included James Parkinson in this because I, I just think that he was such a remarkable man and he we, we don't talk enough about him. Um, I think, you know, if anybody's listening to this from Hollywood, we should have a blockbuster about this man's life because he was incredible. He was a doctor in London. Um, he lived between 1755 and um, 1824. And he published um, a paper on Parkinson's, which he called an essay on shaking palsy. And that was in 1817. But he wasn't just a doctor. Um, he was a political activist. He did a lot to reform the public health at the time and also the conditions in the workhouses. You know, he was obviously a very compassionate man. Um, he was a ge geologist and he collected fossils and classified those and he even wrote a chemistry textbook. So he was quite a man. And when he he wrote um, The Shaking Palsy, he had three patients of his own whom he he recognised that they had similar symptoms. He then saw three people in the street that he actually stopped and interviewed. And he saw that, he recognised that this was a new condition. And it was a neurological condition. And he, um, he classified it as a disease. And up until that time, there was no classification for it. So it wasn't considered to be a disease. I, I, I have been creative with his character for sure, but I imagine that a man like that, because of what he was involved in, you know, and, and in particular, he the care that he gave um, the poor and the people in the workhouses, I considered that he must be an incredibly compassionate man and... I and, and I guess that's that's really the trait that I wanted to bring out in him. So I, I see a theme here. Uh, you you use true life to inspire creative writing. What does this do for you personally? It's an interesting experience. It's it's hard when you have to when you're writing creatively. You've got to dig down deep inside and pull out all of those feelings some of which you think that you've suppressed for a long time. It's difficult to do that, but then at the same time, you deal with those those feelings. And I think it helps me as an author to become very resolute um, in those areas. And, and it helps my um, me to be um, just resilient and to be able to look at the disease probably from a different perspective and so I, th I think it is, it's, it's incredibly therapeutic in that regard because you do have to dig deep and analyse those feelings because what you want to do when you're writing creatively, you want to enable the reader to get inside the head of the character and to really feel what they're feeling. So you have to be able to describe it and put it out there. Is there going to be a third book with Mary featured? <laughs> Um, not at this point. Um, one of my challenges now is um, I, I find it quite challenging to type that many words, to be honest. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to type with Parkinson's. Uh, but 
I'm not going to rule out a third book. We'll just have to see whether I actually have the energy. It's writing a novel is a little bit like running a marathon, you know, it's, um, it, it takes an awful lot of work. What advice would you give to people who are who maybe aren't writers by nature, but are curious about the process that you've gone through and are ready to take on that tough task of identifying these emotions that they've buried deep down? What, what, how do you start that process? If you'd like to write down your story, your own story, then I would encourage you to go for it because it is a form of therapy um, and you can get a lot out of it. If, if you want to write a novel, for example, then I'd highly recommend that you do a course because I think it is a skill that can be learned, but there are fashions and um, there, there are things that you need to learn first and to understand in order to make it something that other people might want to read. But I would certainly encourage anybody to, to write and and just, you know, even if it's just keeping a diary, I think it's really helpful to get those feelings out and to recognize them and it helps that journey to become more positive, more, more resilient. My purpose for writing Mary and Me was firstly to raise awareness because I realized that so little is known about Parkinson's. And so that had that awareness had to really come from my experience of Parkinson's. Um, and, and that that I've observed in my friends. I But I also wanted to inspire and give hope to people and, and take them on that journey from diagnosis through to a place of positivity, of resilience and hope, and to give people hope. And, and in particular, those that are newly diagnosed, because that's it's such a hard time to come to terms with the disease and then bring yourself through that that grief cycle um, related to losing good health and, and, and then get to that place of hope. And, and the third thing was I wanted to share some of what had worked for me because I'm actually doing really, really well with my Parkinson's. You know, Parkinson's happens to us. We can't stop it happening, but we can actually control how we respond to it. And it's the choice that we can make. We can each make that choice. And I think it's really important that readers understand that or others with Parkinson's understand that too, that we have a choice in how we respond. And, you know, you're doing it, you've made your choice and it's given you purpose, obviously, and, you know, all of the advocacy that you are doing for the Parkinson's community. And I feel a little bit the same. It's given me purpose. And, you know, I'm now on this mission to help other people with Parkinson's. Well, we really appreciate all the hard work you put into it. And we, if you, if you buy a copy, buy a copy for a friend too. Well, I can tell you that all of the proceeds that I have received for Mary and me, um, I have and am giving to a research project in New Zealand at Auckland University. And it's a research project. It's a PhDs project. Um, and this person is looking to develop a test for early detection. So we know that we, when we get diagnosed, we lose up to 70% of our um, dopamine producing neurons. And so if imagine if we could diagnose people when maybe they've only lost 10 to 20% of them. 
and we can then intervene with lifestyle changes, wouldn't that be wonderful? And yeah. that's that's what this project is looking at doing. My my goal is to be as well as I can while I wait on a cure. And I have a lot of hope that there will be a cure in my lifetime. There is so much good research going on. And I really believe that it, it will come. And so in the meantime, what I can do is just keep working at my exercise and my diet and and my attitude and all of the things that are important um, and, and be as well as I can while I wait on that cure. So as I've not written a book and you have, uh, let me ask you, and you, and you also coach and teach workshops and lead workshops about writing what would be the difference for somebody who is using writing as a creative outlet from writing their own personal story like a memoir or an autobiography versus putting yourself as a character into a novel that's nonfiction? It just depends on what is most comfortable to you. You want to tell the story in the most authentic, the most vulnerable, the most interesting way. And everybody's going to have a wheelhouse where that's concerned, either fiction or nonfiction. I don't think one's better than the other. I think there is um, a perception that there's safety in the fiction, but that's not necessarily the case. Because if you are writing it from a very personal story and you're adding fictional elements so that it becomes fiction, short fiction, a novel, there is still the heart, the truth, the pain, all the things from your experience that will go into that story. Now, I want to remind people, Robin Cotton's book, Mary and Me, is available now pretty much wherever you buy your books, but you can go to Amazon, you can go to Barnes & Noble, you can go to Indigo here Indigo, in Canada. Like, that's there, you know, anywhere you can buy a book online, you can order it. But I think it's important for people to know that uh, you've been invited to speak at the WPC 2023 in Barcelona next July. Everybody get their tickets starting in October. I'm excited about that. And I am excited that there's more conversation now about the role that creative expression has in wellness and specific to uh, brain conditions as well and neurological conditions. I think that's a really important conversation. I'm thrilled and honored to be included in that. I also facilitate a workshop through the Brain Wellness Program that is available to anyone. It is um, located here in BC, but almost all of the programs are online, including all of my workshops. So look up um, BC Brain Wellness Program and you can find the workshops that I will start again in the fall. Also in the fall, um, I'm going to be teaching an in-depth um, six-week in more intense writing program through Tightrope Theatre, our friends at Tightrope Theatre. You can find out more there if you go to Tightrope Theatre and look up wellness and creative writing, or you can look at my website, rebeccagifford.com. It is open to everyone and everyone is welcome to, to register for that. Registration is open now. So that is this week's episode on writing and Parkinson's and Mary and me. Uh, lovely, lovely chat. When Life Gives You Parkinson's is a podcast brought to you by the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez. Sound designed by Greg Schott. 
Presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's, you are not alone. Parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress 2023 in Barcelona, Spain. Make plans to be there with us. Go to WPC2023.org for details. The Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's podcast hosted by Larry Gifford. Available on Apple Podcasts and at MichaelJFox.org. Have you signed up for PD Avengers? PD Avengers, a global alliance of people with Parkinson's, their partners and friends united in the cause of ending Parkinson's disease. Join now at PDAvengers.com. Be sure to check out the new events calendar. Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. SpotlightYOPD.org. And I'd really appreciate it if you would share this podcast with someone. Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow our audience, but more importantly, raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.